Well, hey everybody, welcome to Eaglebrook Church. It's great to have you with us today. We are beginning a brand new series called The Time for Everything, based on the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And I want to kick things off today by asking you a series of questions. You don't have to answer these out loud, just think of what your answer would be in your head. So the first question is this, on a scale of 1 to 10, how satisfied are you with your job? One being not satisfied at all, can't stand my job. Ten being dream job, couldn't be more satisfied. How satisfied are you with your job? Second question, how satisfied are you with your income? Are you content with what you make or do you frequently find yourself thinking, you know, if I could only just make $1,000 more, how content are you and satisfied are you with your income? Third question, how satisfied are you with your marriage? Don't even blink. We'll move on quickly. Just pick a number. Next question. How satisfied are you with your singleness? For those of you who are single, how satisfied are you with your singleness? And then final question, no matter how old you are or what stage of life you're in, how satisfied are you with the overall condition of your life? Scale from 1 to 10. Now, of course, all these questions lead to other questions like, well, how satisfied should I be? And how satisfied could I be? I mean, is my expectations too high or do I need to raise the bar up a little bit? And ultimately, won't people always want more? As I mentioned last week, this past March, our family was in South Carolina. And one of the mornings that we were there, my two oldest sons and I went to play tennis. And so my wife decided to take a short walk with our three-year-old son and our five-year-old daughter named Isabel. So she was walking along this path that was flanked by a main road on one side, and then there was like a small canal or lagoon on the other. As Sarah was walking, she saw this sign that you can see here on the side screens. So she sees this sign, but for some reason it doesn't click. I don't know why. We had just watched the show Swamp People the night before. So she should have been on high alert for this thing. But about 50 yards later, she was walking along, pointing out some turtles that were sunning themselves on a log in the middle of this lagoon, when all of a sudden she looked down and realized that she was standing two feet from an alligator. No exaggeration, two feet. To hear my three-year-old son tell the story, mommy went, ah, and ran into the bush. <laughs> I said, did you just leave our kids standing by this alligator? She said, no, Isabel ran after me. <laughs> Every man for themselves, apparently, in that moment. Here's a picture of this alligator sunning itself right alongside this path. But we can go back to the first picture real quick. At the bottom there, it says, a fed alligator is a dead alligator. Now, I asked the guy at the resort we were staying at, I said, what does that really mean? He said, well, if you feed an alligator, they always want more. And so if you feed them, then they're going to approach other people for more food, and that's a problem. That's when we have to shoot the alligator. Alligators always want more. Strikes me that human beings are very much the same way. We always want more. We want more house. We want more car. We want more spouse in some cases. We want more time, pleasure, or attention. We always want more. But think about how different your life would be if you weren't dependent upon more for your happiness. It's because more will always let you down. More is a black hole. It's never satisfied. Even when you get more house, there's always more that you could get. 
Even when you get more time or relaxation time, there's always more that you could get. More is never satisfied, more is never enough, and therefore more is never happy. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the author Solomon explores this question. Will more make us happy? He wants to know what will ultimately satisfy a human soul. And I say the word ultimately because there are lots of things that will satisfy you for a short period of time, but then they won't last. And so Solomon wants to know what will bring meaning and purpose to my life? What will ultimately satisfy my soul? Before we look at the answer to that question, let me set some context for the book of Ecclesiastes. As I mentioned, it was written by a man named Solomon. And we get that from the first verse of the book, which says this, These are the words of King David's son who ruled in Jerusalem. Solomon was King David's son who succeeded him as king. Now, we don't know the exact year in which the book of Ecclesiastes was written, but mostly because it's not necessary. The book of Ecclesiastes is not a historical narrative of events. It's written in a genre of literature known as wisdom literature. It's like proverbs. It's like musings or reflections on life. And so it applies to any age person, whether you're a teenager or elderly. It applies to any era of history, 10th century BC all the way up to 21st century AD. In fact, I would encourage you to read the book of Ecclesiastes with us on your own as we go through this series. Now, by all accounts, Solomon was the wisest and wealthiest man of his day. He could get whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted it. But at one point, Solomon had prayed that God would give him great wisdom. And God had answered that prayer. As we go through this book, you're going to see how being the wisest and wealthiest man of his day offered Solomon a unique perspective worth listening to. But what might surprise you as we go through this book is that half the time Solomon sounds like a depressed French philosopher. It's not all that cheery. It's not what you'd expect to find in the Bible. Look at what he writes in the next verse. He says, everything is meaningless, utterly meaningless. You will not find that verse on your next Hallmark card, okay? <laughs> Happy birthday, everything's meaningless, utterly meaningless. You're one year closer to death, congratulations, okay? <laughs> not going to find that on a Hallmark card. Solomon actually uses this word meaningless 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a short 12-chapter book. In fact, in Hebrew, which is the language that Ecclesiastes was originally written in, words were repeated for emphasis. And so when he says meaningless, meaningless, it's kind of like our exclamation point. He's saying everything is meaningless, exclamation point, exclamation point. Solomon goes on to say this in the next verse. He says, generations come and go, but nothing really changes. History merely repeats itself. It's all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. And then he writes that in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. Somebody give this guy a hug. I mean, this is like Debbie Downer before Debbie Downer existed. But sometimes I'll hear people today, and they'll talk about how progressive we are. They'll say, you know, we're so much more progressive than previous generations. We're so much more enlightened than they were. Whenever I hear that, I just chuckle a little bit. There, there's nothing new. Yes, the internet is new. Smart, uh, smartphones, Instagram are new. Taco Bell has a breakfast taco that is relatively new. But... <laughs> 
When it comes to morality, when it comes to ideas and philosophies about life, there's nothing new. For all of our so-called progression, we still have riots in Ferguson, riots in Baltimore. We still have violence in the Middle East and all around the world. People all still pursue success and pleasure. Every person sins. Evil still exists. History merely repeats itself. In fact, Solomon says this in this last verse. Notice he says, And in future generations, no one will remember what we're doing now. Let me ask you, could you name your great-great-grandparents? Could you tell me anything about their life? I mean, some of us could, but most of us can't do that. And it's because for all of our striving for success and accolades, we will soon be forgotten. People will barely remember Justin Bieber, let alone Jason Strand. Now, if you think you're such a big deal, Solomon goes on to point out that why is it that the rocks and the rivers exist for thousands of years here on earth, but we only exist for 70 or 80 years? Your lawn is going to outlive you, okay? Think about that next time you're walking on it. So Solomon goes on this quest. He wants to try to find something that will bring meaning and purpose to his life. He begins with education. Look at what he writes. He says, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. But now I realize that even that was like chasing the wind. I love that phrase. Chasing the wind. Imagine if you saw somebody running frantically across your yard. And when you went outside and you said, well, what are you doing? They said, oh, yeah, I'm just chasing the wind. You'd get on the phone and call a professional to get some help because you would say, you know, you're doing something that's completely futile. You can't catch the wind. But isn't that what many of us do? We spend years and days of our life just chasing the wind. Even when it comes to something as good as, as education. We think, you know, when I, when I can go to college, th then I'll be satisfied. Or maybe it's grad school, post-grad school. More accreditations, more certifications, new careers, more initials before and after my name. Then I'll be satisfied. All good things. But then we get those and there's still a void. And so Solomon moves on to pleasure. He thinks, well, if, if education won't fill the void in my life, surely some good old-fashioned hedonism will do the trick. And so he embarks on one big, long frat party. Look at what Solomon writes in the next verse. He says, come now, let's give pleasure a try. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. He writes, it's silly to be laughing all the time, I said. What good does it do to seek only pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. While seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I hope to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. Question, how much wine is required to fill the void in your heart? Friends, there's not enough wine in the world to do that. Some people have tried. Many people have tried and become addicted or ruined relationships of those close to them. I mean, sure, wine can numb the pain for a while. It can relax you for a while. It, it can bring pleasure for a very short while. But in the long run, wine doesn't help you all that much. It's like chasing the wind. 
And so Solomon moves on again. He says, well, if that doesn't work, maybe I'll try material wealth and acquisition. And people do this today as well. They think, you know, if I could just get that job and make that salary and build that dream house and get that new car, well, then I think I would be finally satisfied. Verse 4 says that Solomon built huge homes. He built vineyards and planted gardens, and he had workers or servants to take care of all of it. He didn't even have to do the work himself. I mean, this was a wealthy man. Recently, I was watching a video on ESPN about boxer Floyd Mayweather, where they toured Floyd's house. I should say one of his houses, because he has several. This one was in Las Vegas, and it was over 20,000 square feet. In one of his garages, he has seven cars that he estimated to be worth $15 million. And Floyd says that he has never driven them, not even once. I mean, just, just think about that for a moment. Here's a guy who spent $15 million on seven cars that he has never even driven. He has more money than he knows what to do with. But here's what might really shock you. Solomon would have made Floyd Mayweather look like a pauper. Solomon collected gold and silver. Some of us collect baseball cards or rocks or stamps. This guy collected gold and silver. Just a little hobby he had. He would hire musicians. In other words, he didn't go to the U2 concert. He hired U2 so he could have a private concert whenever he wanted. The Bible says he had multiple wives and concubines, and so he writes this. He says, I had everything a man could desire. Anything I wanted, I took. I did not restrain myself from any joy. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. How many of us here today are chasing the wind? How many of us are trying to fill up our life with success Money, relationships, partying, or pleasures? How many of us are looking to our kids and their sports or their achievements in life to do that for us? I've personally struggled with that one lately. I mean, maybe for you, you just live for that positive feedback from your boss or from some noteworthy person in your life. Maybe you just want people to like you. You know, you think if people would just like being around me, then I think I'd be satisfied in life. Or maybe your expectations aren't even that high. You just say, you know, I just want a good job, couple of kids, long weekends, take some vacations, early retirement, and a quick and easy death. I mean, that's really all I want. I think all of us can relate to one or more of those. Solomon would say to you today, you are chasing the wind. That will never bring true soul satisfaction into our lives. It's because this world can't deliver I mean, who wants to toil for the next 40 years to make an income that somebody else is going to spend after you die? I mean, is it worth it to live your life for a house that's going to eventually fall down or be torn apart? For a boat that's a little bigger or a car that corners a little bit faster? Do you want to live your life for a drink or drug-induced high? Or orb your life around some sexual pleasure that won't last? I mean, think about that. Is that really going to bring joy and satisfaction to your life? My wife's cousin is in college, and recently he wrote to their grandma to ask her some advice for life. And so she wrote back to him, my wife's grandma is 80 years old. 
She has been married for over 55 years, and she has been walking with God for a very long time. She wrote to him her advice, but what was interesting to me was her advice is not normally what you hear. She never said, just be yourself. She never said, just do what makes you happy. Those are the cliches that you hear all the time these days. Instead, she wrote to him about the book of Ecclesiastes. She said this to him when she was talking about Ecclesiastes. She said this, During my lifetime, people have raised their standard of living, but studies show that contentment and joy have decreased. It seems the more we have, the more we want. Today we have big houses and small families, more conveniences and less time, more possessions and less value. We've cleaned the air, but polluted the soul. This is human nature or under the sun, as Solomon says. Jesus puts it this way. He says this, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? What a question. What good does it do to have more money, more fun, more free time, more pleasure or more education? What good is it to be wiser, richer, more popular or more attractive if in the pursuit of those things you end up losing your own soul? I want to show you the story of a man named Bill Butters. Bill grew up playing hockey for White Bear Lake High School. He was recruited by Herb Brooks, the legendary hockey coach who coached the U.S. to the 1980 Olympic gold medal. He went on to play professional hockey. He was gaining the whole world. Take a look at his story. My role in hockey was to protect the good players. My job was to drop my gloves and hit people. And I must have been in about 100 fights, you know, and my reputation was a tough, rugged, aggressive person, even mean-spirited, and that's what other people thought of me. And uh, I remember the words I heard Brooks. He said, right now, Billy, you're a character. I hope someday you'll have character. I grew up in White Bear Lake in the 50s, and my mom and dad split up when I was four years old. And not having a father figure in my life, um, the sports team, the coaches that I had, kind of became my salvation. I felt accepted there. I felt like I was wanted. Baseball was my first love, and I was just kind of a throw-in on hockey. I, I wasn't a good skater, I wasn't a good shooter, passer, but my buddy said, you're good in football, and you know how to hit people, and you can probably do okay in hockey. So lo and behold, I made the high school hockey team when I was a sophomore, played in the state tournament, was an all-conference player as a junior and senior, and went to the University of Minnesota for four years, and then I played seven years of professional hockey. For 11 years, playing college hockey and playing pro hockey, it was, it was exciting for me. You're playing a sport, you're getting your college education paid for, and then you become a pro, you get a paycheck for playing a game, you practice an hour and a half a day, you go play golf, you get to do all kinds of stuff. It affords you a lifestyle that is unbelievable. I got to play with Gordie Howe, Bobby Hull, some of the greatest names in hockey. It was really a dream come true. It was. You know, something that a lot of people just wish they could do, play pro sports, get a paycheck. I had everything that a hockey fan would want, but I lost my soul. 
it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know what pro athletes do with their money and their time off and that. And I was spending a lot of time away from my family. When you don't have a standard to live by, anything goes. So I thought my lifestyle was great, but everything I was doing was wrong. And the only good thing in my life was my wife and my children. And I didn't even know that. I grew up in that era where I was paid money to play outside the rules. And I didn't know it at the time, but it transcended into my personal life. I played outside the rules of a marriage. I, I, uh, I wasn't a good husband and uh, I wasn't a good dad. I had three beautiful children and a beautiful wife. But the bad thing about me was that I was a good liar. So no one, no one in my family knew the double life I was living, but I, I just did things that aren't conducive to a good marriage. In 1980, my career was coming to an end and my teammate with the Minnesota North Stars saw that. He invited me to a, a hockey camp. It was a Christian hockey camp. I didn't want to go, but I knew my life was falling apart, so I went reluctantly. When I went to the camp, I saw things I never saw in the hockey rink. Kids were reading Bibles, they were singing songs about Jesus. It was unbelievable, something that I had never seen in my life. After these boys were hounding me for three days to participate in the Christian stuff, I finally gave in and went to a chapel. I heard a song about Jesus. I heard a message about salvation, about God wanting to come into my life. And then these same boys invited me to their group that night and they prayed for me. They told me that Jesus was the toughest guy that lived and that I could have him as my Lord and Savior. And I got down on my knees and those boys put their hands on me and prayed with me the prayer of salvation. I couldn't wait to get home to tell my wife what happened. So I go home and I said, Debbie, I got some great news. I invited Jesus in my life and he's my Lord and Savior. And I'm so excited and she was excited for me. I said, that's a good news. Here's the bad news. I've been unfaithful for two, for seven years. And uh, she kind of pulled back. I said, I'm a drunk. I spent our money unwisely. Um, and she started to cry, and then she started to cry harder, and I tried to comfort her, and she pushed me away. It seemed like for a couple hours, I don't know how long it was, but soon she got composed and reached out her hands, and I put my hands in hers, and she looked me in the eye, and she said the same thing that Jesus said to me. She said, I forgive you. <sighs> and let's build our marriage on our faith in Jesus. And uh, she put skin on Jesus for me that day. She took that blow and she said, I forgive you. And uh, it took a long time for me to gain her trust and her respect. But we stayed in our marriage. And uh, shortly thereafter, we started going to church. And we've been coming to Eagle Brook now since 1980. You see, 1980 in hockey is a big name. That's a miracle on ice. Herb Brooks, my old coach, took his team, they won the gold medal, but the miracle on ice in my life happened 
at that hockey camp when those little boys had enough courage to share the love of Jesus with me. Solomon were here today. He would say, don't waste your life. Don't spend your days chasing after the wind. Don't live your life for some pleasure or good feeling. Life is so much more than that. Look what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2. It says, For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything that we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world, he writes, is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. A life lived to please God is not a wasted life. That is the person who will live forever. But that doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen when you wish upon a star, come to church every now and then, or try to be a really good person. The Bible uses words like repent, which means turn away, stop living for this world, make a clean break with your sin. That's what Bill Butters had to do. He had to confess and repent of those specific sins that had separated him from God. And then the Bible uses words like faith. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He lived a sinless life. He didn't deserve to die, but he died in our place. And then three days later, defeated death and rose again. So whoever puts their faith in him will live forever. And when you do that, you find meaning and purpose to everything else that you do in life. If Solomon were here today, he would say this. Live for what matters most. Let me ask you, where are you most likely to spend your last hours on earth? You know, most likely, we will spend our last hours on earth in a bed just like this one. We will be flat on our back. That's a harsh reality, but that's where it will end for most of us. As someone who's been a pastor since I was 21 years old, I have been in a fair number of hospital rooms seated around beds just like these. Recently, I was with a woman who had lost her husband of over 60 years. She was watching a movie, he went to take a shower, and that's where she found him. He had died of a stroke. And as I left his hospital room that morning, I had this thought that, Jason, one day, this is where you'll be. Seems so surreal now at the age of 36 that that would happen, but most likely this is where it will end. But what I've noticed is in all my times in hospital rooms a bed, around beds like this one, I have never once had a person say to me, you know, can you, can you go over to my house down in the basement and get my bowling trophies or my golf trophies? It would just make me feel better as I die. I've never had someone say, you know, go over to the bank and make a big deposit or big withdrawal and just bring all that cash over here because I just want to hold it as I expire. Never had someone say, you know, go get my BMW, shine it up real nice, park it outside the window, because I just want to look at that as I meet my maker. Those aren't the kind of conversations people have at the end of their life. Instead, they talk about two things. 
They talk about, am I right with my family? And am I right with God? That's it. Let me ask you today, are you right with your family? Are you reconciling broken relationships? Are you investing in those relationships and prioritizing them? Because I'll tell you, when you're in this bed, you will want your family around you. And you will also want to know beyond knowing that you know Jesus Christ. Not think that or hope that or think, yeah, I know some things about him. But when you are in this bed, you will want to know that you know him in a personal way. In fact, look at what Solomon writes at the very last verse of Ecclesiastes. He's tried everything. He's tried education. He's tried pleasure. He's tried material wealth and acquisition. He says, you know, when you end up in this bed, those things don't seem to matter all that much anymore. And so he writes this. He says, here is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands. To fear God means to have such a reverence for God's holiness and God's power that you say, you know, I want to live my life to please him above everything else that I do. He says, fear God and obey his commands, for this is the duty of every person. God will judge us for everything that we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. In other words, he says, make sure you are right with God. Can I ask you today? Are you right with God? Are you ready to meet your maker? What good is it to gain the whole world if you end up in this bed and realize that you have lost your soul in the process? My wife's grandma concluded her advice. She said this, she said, enjoy God's gifts. The things of this world in and of themselves are not bad things. She says, enjoy God's gifts, be content with what you have, and be really grateful to know God. Friends, when you are in this bed, you will be so grateful to know God. See, some of us have gotten distracted. We saw something flying by us when we were in our 20s or our 30s, and we thought, that's what I want out of life. And so we started chasing it, only to find that we were chasing the wind. Let me ask you, is there one area of your life where you've become distracted, and you've just begun chasing the wind? Get yourself right with God. And for others of you, maybe you're not sure that you know God. Maybe you're not sure that you are right with God. Don't live for this world until you end up in that bed. That might be too late. Fear God and obey his commands today. Solomon says that is the whole meaning and purpose in life. You will never find true satisfaction apart from a relationship with Christ. And every one of us can have that today. No matter how distracted you've become, no matter how much you've strayed from God or how much you've sinned, you can get right with him today. And so I want to lead all of us in a prayer in just a moment and give you an opportunity to confess and turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ and then begin to live for what matters the most. And if you pray this prayer with me in the quietness of your own mind, I want you to do one of two things. Either come down front after the service at your campus and tell your campus pastor or a prayer team member what you did so they can pray with you and give you some materials. Or go on eaglebrookchurch.com forward slash start. 
and just say, I want to start. We've got some free materials to send you because it's not about just praying a prayer and checking it off the list. It's about beginning a relationship with God that will last forever and living for what matters the most. Let's pray together. You can remain seated as we pray. God, I pray for that person here who has tried everything that Solomon tried. And all it's left them with is a feeling of emptiness. God, I pray right now in this moment that they would discover the meaning, the purpose, the satisfaction that comes through a relationship with Christ, that comes from knowing that your eternity is secure. And so God, right now in the quietness of their own mind, they're just going to pray along with me. God, I acknowledge that I have sinned against you. I have strayed away from you. But right now in this moment, God, I want to come back to you. I pray that you would forgive me for my sins. And I put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ. I believe that he died in my place on that cross and then defeated death and rose again. And so, God, I too pray that I can live forever and rise again. God, from this day forward, I want to live for what matters the most. I don't want to spend any more of my days chasing the wind. And God, for all of us here today, maybe there's one area of our life where we've just been chasing after the wind. And we need to come back to you and get right with you and reprioritize some things in our life. And I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the power to do that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer for anything else at all, feel free to come down front as well. Otherwise, have a great morning, everybody.